The following content contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. It's March 11th, 1979. An excited crowd files into the War Memorial Opera House in San Francisco's Civic Center. It's not your typical buttoned-up opera crowd. Instead, it's a wild cross-section of 1970s San Francisco. Any kind of person that you wanted to see was there that night, from people with their backsides out to women in ball gowns. Record executives sit beside drag queens. A man in a leather tuxedo leads a man in a dog collar to his seat. There's a feeling, backstage and in the crowd, that this night is gonna make history. Music history, cultural history, and civil rights history. Because tonight, it's not opera at the Opera House. Instead, the stage will be taken over by a six-foot-two black man. Well, six-four in heels. Covered in sequins with a tassel headdress and his signature bangle bracelets. His name is Sylvester. Tonight, he will unleash his singular falsetto and groundbreaking disco sound in front of a sold-out crowd. Singer Isora Rhodes could feel the energy from backstage, and it was intense. That show was so packed, and there was people even lined up against the wall, sitting in the house and everything. And baby, they were screaming and hollering and rocking the place. Friend and manager Tim McKenna comes backstage to find his star having a moment. I went back to the dressing room and Sylvester was bouncing off the walls. He had taken some acid and bouncing off the walls with a pair of scissors in his hand, cutting up all this drag. And he said, just be here. Don't bother me about cutting up this stuff that you paid so much money for. The place is packed. The audience is primed and rowdy. And Sylvester, he's peaking on acid. Stage manager Robert Pintozzi delays his intro just to let everyone settle a bit. In accordance with the rules and regulations of the Opera House. They've been working toward this moment, and it's finally here. Ladies and gentlemen, Miss Martha Wash and Miss Azora For the crowd here tonight, Sylvester is not just a star. He's their star. Through him, they're seen. They're real. They have made it to the Opera House. San Francisco was a unique place in 1979. It was the kind of liberated zone. But out there in the world, things were different. Elton John was still in the closet. Freddie Mercury was flamboyant as anything, but he wasn't technically out. Even the village people, Disco's campiest act, were read as straight by many audiences, despite singing dead giveaway songs like YMCA and Macho Man. Sylvester, on the other hand, was tall and flamboyant and black and fabulous and wearing a blue sequin gown, somehow utterly free to be himself. Well, we fucked that up, didn't we? I'm Jason King. One of my earliest musical memories comes from when I was five or six years old. My parents bought me a long-playing K-Tel cassette compilation of disco hits. 
On side B, there was this track called You Make Me Feel Mighty Real. At the time, I had no idea who the artist was. All it said was Sylvester. Was it a man, a woman, a band? It didn't matter. The energy on that track made my pulse race. It became my anthem. Today, I'm a journalist, musician, professor, and chair of the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at New York University. Every semester, I teach a class called Artists and Audiences in Historical Context to a room full of 19-year-old undergrads. My students know a surprising amount about artists from decades before they were born, like The Beatles, James Brown, Led Zeppelin. But when I ask if they've heard of Sylvester, a musician who paved the way for so many pop culture figures that they love today, artists like Janelle Monet, Frank Ocean, Sam Smith, I just get blank stares. So to get started, I play them this. And slowly, they start to get it. Those churchy vocals, robotic synthesizers, that funky groove. And then I show my students the music video for Mighty Real. Sylvester shifting in between masculine and feminine looks, playing with boundaries in a way that's still provocative, even today. This is Sound Barrier, a show about artists who break new ground in music and culture. And this season, we're diving deep into the world of Sylvester. This is the story of how a black gay musician in 1970s and 80s San Francisco went from counterculture curiosity to global superstar. How he searched for a unique sound of his own and the right collaborators. How he fought with his record companies to get his fair share and present his authentic self. Rapper Mickey Blanco. In the hearts and minds of queer people and cis people alike, Sylvester is canonized. Sylvester really is one of our saints because they laid the groundwork for so many. I just can't even believe that he even existed. Actor and singer Billy Porter. And he does not get the credit that he deserves and is due because he did something that literally no one has been able to do since. I connected with Sylvester because of the swag and the fierceness that he had. Rapper Big Frida. I mean, you put on a Sylvester song today and you're going to get the party started. DJ Nikki Ciano. Just one of the greatest disco stars ever, but that's the wrong legacy for him because I think he's one of the greatest singers ever. Singer Patti LaBelle. He was way out there, not afraid to take chances. And that's what I loved about him. He said, here I am, take me or leave me. The fabulous Sylvester. I've never had any problems with me being exactly and doing exactly what I've done. I'm not hiding anything from anyone. If anyone wants to know anything, all they have to do is ask. And that's on them and not on me. This is episode one, A Night at the Opera. It was spring 1970. Sylvester James was 22 years old, hanging out at the Whiskey A Go-Go, one of the hottest music clubs on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood. He had on pants with a dress. Since it opened in 64, the whiskey had been the launch pad for artists like Alice Cooper, The Doors, and Buffalo Springfield. Sylvester was already living life like he was a star, at least in his own head. Now he just had to become one in real life. 
The freewheeling 60s were still in full swing in 1970. Counterculture was still in the air, but progressive as it was, it was still a pretty white scene. Now, just a note, throughout this series, you're gonna hear clips from interviews with Sylvester. Some of them have never been heard before. Being black in those days was still, at that point, kind of rare to have black hippies. And I had all this hair and I wore all this drag and all these bracelets and all this stuff. And I was hanging out on the boulevard, you know, and going to rock concerts and stuff like that. And there weren't that many black kids. But on this particular night, Sylvester sees another black guy in the crowd. And I had a blonde wig and this glitter jacket, but I wasn't in drag. I was a boy. The guy in the wig was named Reggie Dunnigan. And I looked across the room, and there was a tall, very thin, very beautiful, dark-skinned man. And he was wearing all black. He had a million necklaces and a million bracelets, and he had on a woman's dress that he had split down the front so that it was like an open coat. He was like perfectly half man, half woman all at once. We immediately saw each other and just zoomed right here. And we hit the dance floor and the queens went wild. We were just the two hottest people in the club. And he said, oh, you're fabulous. And I said, oh, you're fabulous. Reggie was in town from San Francisco. He told Sylvester about this commune slash performance troupe he was part of called the Coquettes. They all lived together in the Haight-Ashbury, the San Francisco neighborhood that was ground zero for hippie culture. They were into freaky makeup and drag and doing wild shows in front of wild crowds. It was nonstop glitter and drag and sex and acid and hash. One Coquette described them as a hippie glitter genderfuck troupe. Drag was hardly a radical new idea for Sylvester. As a teenager, he'd been part of a squad of self-styled party stars who called themselves the Disco Tays. Author Josh Gamson wrote a definitive biography called The Fabulous Sylvester. Josh describes the Disco Tays as somewhere between a sorority and a street gang. They were young black teens who spent their days on hair, makeup, and outfits. And then they'd slip out of their parents' houses to join that night's raging party scene. The discotes walked the streets of Watts and Compton in drag, like they were walking the red carpet. Andrea Horn was one of the discotes. She talked about how Sylvester and another member of the group used to battle it out in song. Larry Hines had a high soprano voice. It was actually a little clearer and purer than Sylvester's voice, so they often had sort of sing-offs to Aretha songs and who could hit the highest notes. I call it sissy kung fu. Being a discotee was fun, but in homophobic South Central LA, it was also dangerous. Discotee Jackie Hoyle. We were out there on a mission, and that was to party. You know, we knew it was happening. If you got caught in the wrong place, you got your ass whooped. LA had an anti-masquerading ordinance that had been on the books since the late 1800s. Cross-dressing was still illegal, even in the mid-1960s. Is it dangerous? Yes. Are they holding their own? Also, yes. You know, they're all there on the stroll doing their thing. My friend Stephen Winter is a filmmaker, writer, and professor at Brooklyn College. He's one of the smartest people on Sylvester that I know. When you think about Sylvester, he was so confident and so clear about himself. And I think part of that was he spent those beautiful teen years in community with his people. Other teenage black queens and trans girls who were giving it to each other and giving it to the scene. By 1970, when Sylvester was hanging out at the whiskey, 
the discotheques had drifted apart. When you think of Sylvester's childhood and early upbringing, it was a lot of people saying that there's really nothing you're going to be able to do in this world because you are a Black, queer, androgynous, and feminine. There's no space for you. Growing up in L.A., two men being in love with each other and having a relationship was unheard of, especially in the Black community. So when Reggie described this gender-bending, pansexual clan of performers called the Coquettes, Sylvester was intrigued. I told him, I said, you're just wasted down here in L.A. I said, you must come to San Francisco. When I came here in 1970, a friend of a friend said, come to San Francisco and call these people. They're living in this fabulous Victorian house on Haight Street. I walked in the door and they fell in love with me. The Coquettes were performing at a Chinese movie theater called The Palace. Reggie Dunnigan talks about the moment that he and the other Coquettes discovered Sylvester's talent. By the way, most of Sylvester's friends and collaborators use he, him pronouns to refer to him. But Reggie calls Sylvester she. That day, we were moving a piano and I took Sylvester. I had no idea Sylvester could sing. I just thought she was a big, fabulous person that I had found and, you know, I was just in love with her. Sylvester sat down at the piano and started playing away and my mouth just dropped. And we all turned around and looked at her and then she started singing. And I'm telling you, we were all blown away. She was singing gospel music. And immediately we decided to do a gospel show and have Sylvester be the star of the show. They said, oh, there's a cockhead show tonight. When I first saw them, now I had no intentions of being in it, but I was just so fascinated by the theater. They were men with beards in drag, writing shows like Journey to the Center of Your Anus. I mean, just insane theatrical things. Arriving in some foreign city, afraid and unsure on the dark. The Coquette shows were raunchy. At last, I found the slipperiest stick and shank. Radically raunchy. Half-naked, free-for-alls. Peter Minton played piano for the group. The Cockettes did some big production number that closed with them all raising their arms, and in their big paper cups they had with cream aerosol cans, and so it looked like they were all these cocks ejaculating. It was a big mess. <laughs> Drugs, naturally, helped a lot. And the audience, they'd been smoking grass and dropping LSD, and, and they all wanted to believe they were at this fabulous event, this, like a 1930s movie. Filmmaker John Waters, who went on to direct cult movies like Pink Flamingos and Hairspray, was living in San Francisco at the time. He was a regular at the shows. The audience was such a part of it. I mean, it was such an insane asylum. So it's impossible to imagine what that experience was like when the audience and the actors and actresses were all completely stoned out of their minds. It was bearded, transvestite, hippie, communist, which is, I don't know, I've never seen it since. Sylvester moved into their main commune, a Victorian flat they called a Hate Street Chateau. It was exactly as advertised, non-stop glitter and drag and sex and acid and hash. Peter Minton, the Coquette's piano player, first met Sylvester at a rehearsal. And Sylvester came over to the piano, and he was wearing a stocking cap and a little woman's blouse and probably high-heeled shoes. But I didn't know that it was not the guy. I, I thought, it's just this big black woman next to me. Sylvester asked Peter if he knew Stormy Weather, a torch song that Ethel Waters first sang at the Cotton Club in Harlem in 1933. 
As Peter started to play it, Sylvester sang, transforming himself into a 30s movie siren. Don't know why There's no sun up in the sky Stormy weather Do you know that movie Flying Down to Rio, Fred Astaire and Ginger Brothers? I said, oh yeah, so I play songs from that and uh, songs that Ethel Waters sang, Lena Horne, and so... He and I just clicked immediately. Peter started accompanying him for his solo number in the Coquette shows. They became friends and close collaborators. Hello, Peter, this is Sylvester. Um, Would you send me, or can I come by your house and get one of those fabulous photographs of you and call me? The number is 563-5243. Bye. Chi-chi. Peter Minton was playing piano for the Coquettes. Then he stopped playing for them and started playing for me. And we had a little jazz thing where we, he would teach me period songs, Sleepy Time Down South, Big City Blues, all of these great old songs because, you know, Peter's real into that. So no matter what the title of the show was, there was always a black nightclub singer and there was always a black nightclub singer. I'm just a jaded lady and you're a fool in love. <laughs> There's a beautiful photo of Sylvester in the lobby of the Palace Theater, where the Coquettes did their shows. He's in a white vintage dress, long hair streaming down, eyes closed, head tilted toward the horn of a Victrola, straight out of the 1920s. Right away, fans like filmmaker John Waters could see that Sylvester was something special. I mean, Sylvester was the Coquettes' Lena Horn, and uh, would come out and do these great soulful numbers. And when he came out, everybody paid more attention. It got a little bit serious for him. Sylvester was obviously the most talented one. Talent wasn't the only way that Sylvester stood out. Sylvester was often given the stereotype black character role. Peter Minton. And so he would be the maid, and he'd have a feather duster and a big prosthetic butt on him, and come in and shuffle around, and he was playing a gal named Mabel, probably. They'd say, Mabel, set the table. And audiences loved it. Sylvester was playing with the racist stereotype of the mammy figure, taking it over the top. Filmmaker John Waters. It would have been completely in character for him to do mammy. You have to remember at the time Tina Turner did an album covering whiteface, even watermelon. Only three members of the Coquettes were black. Reggie Dunnigan was one of them. Everything was a part of drag. I mean, if we made fun of something, it was because that was our theater. So it was okay. You are trying to create a utopian society. Stephen Winter. But you can't do that without first wrestling with race in a very real way, a way that coquettes were not necessarily prepared to do, but a way that Sylvester had to in order to just survive from day to day being a black person in the society, much less a black person in a dress owning themselves as a queer individual. As he settled into his place in the coquette show, Sylvester became increasingly clear about what he was doing on stage. He had a specific archetype in mind, the black female superstar of the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. With a gardenia in his hair and a bias-cut vintage dress, he even had a name for his Harlem cabaret alter ego, Miss Ruby Blue. (laughs) 
the Cockettes were not his entire identity. Filmmaker John Waters. I think Sylvester was very ambitious and wanted to make a name for himself. And you could tell he was going to go someplace. You knew it. Everybody knew it. The Cockettes knew it. Everyone knew it. As Sylvester got more stage time and saw how audiences responded, you can imagine how he might start to feel a little exasperated by the chaos of the Cockettes, their gleeful lack of professionalism, their allergy to rehearsal, the general absence of what you might call talent. I'm sure there were some jealousies of Sylvester because Sylvester was so incredibly talented. And some of the great Cockettes, some of the greatest things about some of them is that they weren't talented. That also made it very, very appealing and added to the lunacy. Piano man Peter Minton thought Sylvester was the only thing anyone remembered once the drugs wore off. Well, Sylvester was getting such attention. See, he was such a standout from the group that the manager of the Cockettes said, you should do your own show. So we rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed until we got this show together where I did a show called Women of the Blues, where I would do Billie Holiday at the Waters, Lena Horne, and I'd wear fabulous gowns. God bless the child that's got his own Around this time, Sylvester liked telling people that he was Billie Holiday's cousin, once removed. His rendition of God Bless the Child, her signature song, feels like it's straight out of the jazz age. But he doesn't sound like a Billie Holiday imitator. He finds a way to make it his own. He took his publicity photo dressed in this persona and signed it, Miss Ruby Blue, 1925. In September 1971, columnist Rex Reed showed up at the Palace Theater with author Truman Capote and socialite Gloria Vanderbilt to see the Cockettes do their show, Tinsel Tarts in a Hot Coma. In his nationally syndicated column, Reed wrote that the Cockettes were, quote, the current underground sensations of counterculture show business, the darlings of the underground press, and if you've never heard of them, some circles would say, you're just not alive. That's the kind of hype that gets you noticed. Janis Joplin, Alice Cooper, and Tina Turner started showing up at the palace to see what all the buzz was about. Then, Rolling Stone magazine published a big, splashy piece on the Cockettes. The writer singled out Sylvester, describing him as a beautiful black androgene who has a gospel sound with the heat and shimmer of Aretha's. With this much heat, opportunity inevitably came knocking. Some New York producers booked the Cockettes for a two-week run at a decrepit theater in downtown Manhattan. Instead of doing a song in the Cockettes show, Sylvester would be the opening act, performing a full set of his own. ABC's affiliate sent a camera crew to San Francisco airport to send off these unlikely local celebrities. The Cockettes as a group were born out of the early Haight-Ashbury years, and whether people like them or not, they're very much a part of the San Francisco scene, and no one can argue with their success. A New York Hamburger King is underwriting all their costs, and they're being greeted in New York tonight in a giant reception given by Tennessee Williams, Truman Capote, Rex Reed, and 42 Vogue models. You can hear the awkward tiptoeing of 70s TV news trying to get its head around the Cockettes' gleeful gayness. And yes, Martha, men do hug and kiss with more than just brotherly love. And no, we're not in Kansas anymore. 
At New York's JFK Airport, in the fading light of a late October afternoon, the Cockettes were greeted like rock stars, like bearded beetles in glitter and drag. Danny Fields, who would go on to discover the Ramones in a few years, was there with several hundred people to meet the plane. I was working at Atlantic Records in the publicity department. We were on our way to Las Vegas to see Bette Midler open for Johnny Carson, and we'd heard about the Cockettes. We went to see them, and they were hysterical. I think the word was out that it was something extraordinary coming here. New York's downtown A-list snapped up tickets for opening night. John Lennon and Yoko Ono would be there, along with author Gore Vidal, beat poet Allen Ginsberg, fashion eminence Dinah Vreeland, and designer Bill Blass, author Nora Ephron, the entire cast of Jesus Christ Superstar, and, according to writer Maureen Orth, a dozen Vogue editors, two real princesses, and the night clerk at the Hotel Albert. Reggie Dunnigan. The two weeks before opening night, we were invited to every major party in New York. I mean, all we had to do was show up and look and be fabulous. It must have been pretty exciting for Reggie and the rest of the Cockettes. That opening night was a scene. They closed off the streets in front of the Anderson Theater, and for two to four blocks, all you saw was limos. Three or four deep. It was like, I've never seen so many limousines in my life. But there is such a thing as too much hype. It was scary. I remember walking into that theater, and I was just, like, frightened. Replace their loving, super-stoned hippie crowd with blasé, seen-it-all New Yorkers, and the Cockettes just bombed. The opening night was a disaster. People backstage were in tears, and people in the audience were in a huff. And leaving, and Angela Lansbury stood up and said, let's get the fuck out of here real loud, and people just followed her, and that was it. When Angela Lansbury is dropping F-bombs, you know you're in trouble. I don't think we really realized how uptight, overly sophisticated, and spoiled the New York audience was, as opposed to San Francisco audiences, which were just like so open, so enthusiastic. Exhausted and demoralized, the Cockettes still have a two-week run to do. On the second night, Sylvester comes on stage and tells the crowd, I am so sorry for this fiasco I am associated with. Sylvester throws the Cockettes right under the bus. Reggie Dunnigan saw that his beautiful, talented, androgynous friend was moving on. After Sylvester became a star, and rightly so, we uh, were close, but never as close as we were before, because he had something very important to do. And he developed an ego. I mean, he snubbed a lot of people. Stephen Winter again. Sylvester's instinct to separate himself from the group might be seen as an act of self-preservation. You know, I want to make sure people know that I actually have some talent and some drive. But it was so bitter and dark of Sylvester to do that. Maybe there was a lot of built-up frustration between him and the Cockettes, not just about the professionalism, but about the whole thing of living your life as if there are no consequences. As a Black person, Sylvester knows that everything in life has consequences. Two things must have been clear on the flight back to San Francisco. It was the beginning of the end for the Cockettes. And Sylvester? He was just getting started. Thank you. So back to where we started. March 1979. 
just about eight years later. Sylvester was on stage at the Opera House, in front of an adoring hometown crowd with massive hits of his own and a group that fit him and his sound perfectly. Who said wishes don't come true, y'all? A long time ago, I said, I want to be at the Opera House. <laughs> Lo and behold, here we are. Thank you. Thank you very much. Midway through the show, they performed a song that he had been covering since his days singing blues and jazz as Miss Ruby Blue. The arrangement was new, but the lyrics still held a place in his heart. Listen, so the first time I heard this song, it was in the 60s, and it was done by the Beatles. No, who? The Beatles. Oh. And the song had to do with animals, y'all. Birds. Birds? Blackbirds. Patrick, you got some blackbirds from me. It's a song about liberation, about meeting your moment, and it means something special for Sylvester, especially tonight. Y'all ready, girl? I guess so. It goes like this. Blackbirds singing in the middle of the Over the next eight episodes, we'll bring you the story of Sylvester, flamboyant disco star, androgynous gender pioneer, AIDS activist, and black queer ancestor legend. If you've ever wanted to feel mighty real, to live your most liberated life, to find your tribe and share your voice, then you may see reflections of yourself in Sylvester's story too. Next time on Sound Barrier, Sylvester. There's a date, March 16th, 1971, and you go, holy shit, these are demos. The discovery of some long lost music takes us back to Sylvester's earliest days as a solo artist. They didn't just dress in drag, they dressed in spectacular drag. But is Sylvester really ready for success? If you can imagine a small control room, up to seven or eight people in it, all getting high and partying, me being so wild and everything, that made people listen. There's two things we don't like down here, boys, and you're both of them. That's next time on Sound Barrier. Oh, Peter, <clears throat> Peter, this is Sylvester. Um, I need to talk to you tomorrow, real, real important, about some photographs and designs from you, by you for a show, real important, 78 records with smiling faces coming out of the labels. It's got to be real, real curious. So uh, I'll call you tomorrow during the day, and I hope you're at home when I call. Bye. Sound Barrier is a Spotify original podcast from Best Case Studios. It was hosted by me, Jason King, and written by me, Adam Pincus, Brent Katz, and Stephen Winter. Brent Katz is senior producer, and Karkeet is our producer, Associate producers are Ashley Warren and Ali Gallo. Josh Gamson is consulting producer. Co-producers are Louis Spiegler, Christian D. Bruin, and Tim Smith. This episode was edited by Vanessa Lowe, with assistance from James Hansen, and mixed and mastered by Dean White. 
Paul Dallas is our archival producer, with help from Katie Heiserman. Music is by Gautam Shrikishan, Sam Retzer, and Roger Neal, with additional music from Brent Katz, Blue Dot Sessions, and Five Alarm. Music supervision by Joel C. High and Sammy Posner, with help from Ricky Holman. Executive producers are me, Jason King, Adam Pincus for Best Case Studios, and Stephen Ames Brown for The Sylvester Estate. Corinne Gilliard is executive producer for Spotify. Special thanks to Harry Weinger, Shirley Ramos, Brian Smith, Linda Cohen, Galen Mullins, Kevin Pham, Baron Farmer, Gina Delvac, and Ilana Myers. Find and follow Sound Barrier only on Spotify.